Are you wanting to create a highly prosperous photography business doing what you love? Or maybe you have a great business already and want to up your game? Then you're in the right place. Master craftsman photographer Lucy Dumas and her guests are here to support you on your journey. Now here's your hostess and tour guide, Lucy. Here's your quote for the day. Over the years, I've come to appreciate how animals enter our lives prepared to teach and far from being burdened by the inability to speak, they have many different ways to communicate. It is up to us to listen more than hear, to look into more than past by Nick Trout. So hello and welcome to this episode. This is Lucy as always. And my guest today is Nicole Bagley, a successful pet photographer and teacher slash coach extraordinaire. (laughs) Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Before we get started, I want to remind you to connect with me at www.lucydumascoaching.com, Lucy with an I, where you can learn about my insight training program, grab a free copy of my ebook on marketing in the real world, and so much more. So I'm so excited to introduce you to Nicole Bagley. One of the things I love about my new podcast is that people that I've admired from afar or enjoyed learning from and sharing on Facebook, I get the opportunity to actually get to know them. And Nicole has been one of those people. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So she's a PPA master craftsman photographer and also has her CPP. She's a zoological animal trainer turned pet photographer and educator. She established Nicole Bagley Photography in Pittsburgh nine years ago, but now is in Charlotte, North Carolina. Did I have a good accent on that? Just, <laughs> yeah, not really. <laughs> She's founder of Hair of the Dog, which I love that title. It's an online community, and she empowers pet photographers and others to turn their dreams into reality. She helps them create successful and profitable businesses. And she also has a book called Pet and Equine Photography for Everybody, and you can find it on Amazon. So again, Nicole, welcome, and thank you so, so much for saying yes to my invitation. Oh, yeah. No, thanks so much for having me. This will be fun. Yeah. So the quote had me think of a question that I'd love to have you answer. What have you learned about life or anything non-photographic from photographing animals? Well, just working with animals in general is two things. Number one, do what you love. And number two, patience. (laughs) And if you're not doing what you love and you're working with animals, then you will never have the patience. But if you're doing what you love, then you have oodles of patience. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So several years ago, my intuition told me that the next big market that had a wide open path was pet photography. I could see that there was low competition relative to other, you know, headshots and family and weddings and so forth. Lots of independent vendors to partner with. And the dog lover statistics have gone up and up and up, both in how many more there are who sometimes I hear from my clients love their dogs more than their kids. (laughs) (laughs) And also that the investment people make in their pets is just skyrocketing. 
So, you know, I'm a baby whisperer. So I didn't become primarily a pet photographer just because my passion is, is kids, but I could see that huge opportunity. So Nicole, am I right? Is there good money in pet photography? It is. I mean, it's fantastic. You have to love it for sure. Same reason that I would not do well as a newborn photographer, (laughs) because that is not my passion. But I do love working with the dogs and the people in my general target market. There's quite a few out there. The market I tend to reach are the young professionals that don't have kids yet. They might be married, might be engaged, might be single, but the common denominator is usually they don't have kids yet. Another really common part of the segment are the older empty nesters that maybe the kids are out of the house and now the dog has taken over as <laughs> numero uno. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, but yeah, that tends to be my, my personal market tends to be a little bit younger. That makes a lot of sense. I have to say one of my coaching clients who was doing really amazing fine art pet photography to sell as art pieces, my gut said that she would be an amazing pet photographer what she was doing was real estate and families and kids and headshots and I don't know, drone photography. And here she had this passion for animals. And it honestly took me months, Nicole, to convince her (laughs) that there was money in it and that she could build her dream on it. Right. And she'd call and say, my husband says you're crazy. (laughs) It's true. When I started, I started this business, gosh, 2010. So it's been what, nine, almost 10 years now. And I started as a family photographer. And then I also did pets because I didn't think that, oh, can't do just pets. That's crazy. And then probably about four years ago now, I made the switch to all pets all the time. Yeah. So my coaching client in the three years since we started her coaching and you know who she is, mm-hmm. she's had about a half a million dollars in sales in the three years. So I have that kind of intuitive, like I'm not the early adopter. I don't know if you know those terms. Sounds like you yeah. were the early uh-huh. adopter, but I can feel a trend coming. Yep. Yep. And I felt that coming and it's so exciting to see everything that's happened within the pet community and the opportunity for photographers. So this is not on my little question list, but do you think people by specializing in pets have an advantage over somebody that might want to add it to their repertoire? What's your thoughts on? It's hard to say. I am an advocate for specializing in it, or at least when I was doing both, you go to a splash page and then you can choose families or pets because there's not a lot of overlap in that target market. Like my family clients were family clients that had kids and families and they might include the dog every once in a while, but the poor dog was not like top of their list anymore. Mm -hmm. And then my pet clients, like I said, were younger and it was just their dog and their dog was their kid. And so, you know, the, the family clients don't necessarily want to sift through images of like dogs being the hero in front of the city where they wanted, you know, my family clients wanted to see interaction and cute smiling faces and, you know, hugs and all that stuff. Where my pet clients wanted to see like dogs larger than life and like maybe some interaction between the dogs and the owners. So I, I tried to keep those two a little bit separate. And I think it depends also to what your goals are. If your goal is to continue ramping up your pet photography and eventually have that become your main focus, then I would definitely have at least those two separate kind of sub sites. 
Um, whereas if you love weddings or whatever you're doing and you just want to add some pets, maybe it's not as critical to have that, that, you know, more, uh, dedicated spot on your site. So either way, if someone wants to have it as an addition, additional income and so forth, you feel like that could be great if they want to actually have it as a bigger feature, then they need to separate it website, maybe I'm thinking even a name of the business. Yeah, it starts to get tricky because I I ran into that when I was trying to manage both sides. It was the same name, same brand. But then it's like, well, what do I show on Instagram? And what do I do here? And, you know, so you're always trying to juggle. And then if you try to have two separate, I had two separate Facebook pages. This was back, I think even before Instagram really was a thing. And it was just, it got really overwhelming to try to manage both of them. And that's when I kind of made the decision to go all pets because it was getting to the point where, I mean, it was really a pretty tough decision too, because it was to the point where my families were, you know, they were over half of my income and I did nothing to market them. It was all word of mouth and SEO at that point. I literally did no marketing and I had, you know, $2,500, $3,000 sales over and over and over. And I liked it. It wasn't that I didn't like it, but I loved the pets. And I didn't have any more time to focus on growing the pet side of my business and also growing hair of the dog, which is my education site and all these things and something had to give. And that was my family photography side, which was, yeah, a super scary decision, but it ended up being definitely the right call. <laughs> yeah, I did the same thing. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think anytime you're feeling that, that resistance or that little bit of fear on there might be something underneath you telling you that, that, that everything you want might be right on the other side of making that hard decision. Oh, I love that. It is a tough decision sometimes. Yeah, I did that. I was a wedding photographer for 12 years. And because I knew that even though I love children so much, I love photographing them. I felt like if I could pour all my time, energy, marketing, learning curve, have thought all of that into weddings, I could make a living faster. And then as I started to see that I was going to get tired of weddings, <laughs> then I started growing the children's business. And like you said, it was very scary. Mm-hmm. It is. You're looking, you're like, oh my gosh, this is how I pay myself. Yeah. <laughs> this is how I feed my family. <laughs> and when people call and say, hey, are you available for weddings? I would say no, because a wedding is like, 20, 25, 30 hours right. out of my life. So would you, if someone calls you or past clients, would you still do family portraits or have you turned? My past clients that I loved, I would still do. <laughs> but new clients I would refer out. And yeah, I would just, yeah, a, few, a handful of past clients. I told them, hey, I'm switching, but I'll, I'll continue to do your family pictures as long as you want me to. But there was just just a few of those. So you said you were two, three, four thousand dollar average with your pet. Yeah, about twenty five hundred, three thousand dollar average with my family's back back at that time. So what are your ranges now with pets? My average for my pets is usually about twenty eight hundred to thirty five hundred, mm-hmm. um, somewhere in that range. What do they take home for that? They usually will have a wall piece and an album and then plus or minus adding on some digital files. But yeah, my main focus is artwork. So we always talk about something for the wall. 
most of my clients had on an album or image blocks or something to display the images, you know, more in a tabletop setting. And then I'd say probably 60, 70% will add on some digital files too. Uh, I have my pricing structured so that I can say if when they call and say, Hey, we're interested in the digitals, I can say, Oh yeah, I sell the digitals, but I have them priced. So it's like, but you're not going to buy just those because that's a stupid decision. <laughs> because they're priced, you know, it's just a price anchor. And it was also like, what do I need to price them at that it doesn't hurt my soul if somebody were to just buy that. But it's really a silly financial decision to just buy that because you can get more by adding them on <laughs> to actually the things that I want you to purchase, which is artwork that you will you know, enjoy forever. Great. So if someone wanted to invest $20,000 in your art, are you priced so that they can do that? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> One of my friend tours, he's been a mentor and also is a good friend, Steve Sacarito. Do you know Steve? Yeah, I, I don't know him personally, but I know who you're speaking of. Yes. So he goes to people's businesses and he'll spend a week with them and redo everything. And one of their assignments is to spend $5,000 having portraits created. And almost all of them cannot find a photographer who there's enough to buy at the price point that they have <laughs> to spend $5,000. Right. Yeah. That's so, eye-opening. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're like, okay, I've purchased, you know, five wall portraits and two albums and, and the digital files and it's still only $2,000. Right. You know? Yeah. So... Just a little tip for people is when it comes to pricing, I'm not, I don't know about your philosophy, but I like to go with the end in mind. Uh huh. So in your case, I'd say, okay, I want a $4,000 sale to be easy. What do I think most people will purchase? Okay. A wall portrait, maybe a few, you know, little stuff, a book. So then pricing those so that it's easy for people to invest three to $4,000. Absolutely. Yeah. My, my, pricing philosophy is pretty similar. I like to look at a price list and say, what's the easiest path here? And I want that easiest path to be to my target sale. And yeah, and basically not have easy options of, oh, here's a single print. Here's a single digital file. No, those aren't available. Right. <laughs> you know, if you, if you do the things I want you to do, like buy a wall piece or have an album and you want a five by seven for your desk, I will certainly sell you a five by seven, but it doesn't mean it needs to be on your price list. Telling everybody that that's available. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> so I know that you have some practical tips you wanted to share. Yeah. The seven tips. And I know my listeners will be eager to hear it. But I also want to, because I've seen her list, I haven't heard it all, you know, detailed out, which I'm excited to hear. But I think many of those tips apply to people photography as well. Yeah. So take it away, Nicole. All right. Perfect. We touched briefly on number one, which is patience and really just a love of animals. Because if you don't have that, find something you love to photograph and go with that. Don't go into pet photography just because you think, oh, it's a new niche and I'll, you know, and it'll be easy to make money. If you don't love what you're shooting, it's going to come through. The animals could tell, the people can tell. You just, you want to love what you're doing. So, if you're loving pets, if you love animals, continue to listen. <laughs> um, and, and having that patience too. I remember I had a, 
a session in Pittsburgh a couple years ago. It was a client. She could only do it at like two in the afternoon. It's in February. It was a snow session with her Huskies. She had broken her ankle. Um, it had to be in her yard. Thankfully, she had a beautiful home and a really gorgeous property. But I was like, I, I, and usually Pittsburgh in February, it's cloudy and overcast and you could shoot it too in the afternoon. It would be okay. But no, this was a bright sunny day, still snow on the ground, blue sky. I'm like, well, I'm going to need help. Um, Cause I was going to need to use some lights. So I had a um, local photographer help me out and she was a newborn um, toddler child photographer. And, you know, after I set up this dog for the shot, like literally seven times, you know, no big deal. Just have to keep going until we get it. <laughs> She's just like, oh my God, how do you have the patience for this? I'm like, I, I don't know how you have the patience to wait two hours till a newborn falls asleep. <laughs> right. This I'm doing something and I'll, I'll set my dog up like 10 times. I don't care. It's fine. So you need to have that patience just for working with the animals for sure. And just that love of them will shine through, you know, as you continue to, to hone your craft. Absolutely. So what's number two? Number two is start to know the, um, the behavior of these animals you're working with. You know, our dogs can't speak, but they communicate with us constantly in nonverbal communication with their ears and their tail and the little fur standing up and behind their neck and maybe just like a lip licking or just little tiny things that you can start to see, oh, they're a little stressed by this. Or, you know, you can see how they're feeling about what you're doing, about the situation, about maybe somebody riding by on a bike. It's so important to start to really learn about how these animals communicate so that you can give them a great experience and bring out the best of them. Um, And likewise, how to bring out the best of them is by having some basic training knowledge. There's a great book. It's a super easy read. It's um, called Don't Shoot the Dog by Karen Pryor. I read it ages ago back when I was a zoological um, animal training intern. And it is like the basis of how to just positive reinforce to get the behavior you want. It works with dogs and dolphins and birds and husbands, mm. husbands? All of those things. children, <laughs> all of them. So it's a great book. It's a super easy read. I love it. That lets you start to, to start to have a conversation with these animals in a way that they understand, which is often some food. It might be a toy. It might be a belly rub. And part of that learning about that is a conversation with the owner before the session to find out what motivates their dog. And then just having that experience to kind of know what the dog's thinking and be able to, to direct the dog's behavior. And I always tell my clients to, you know, before the session, because the biggest hurdle in getting people to book a pet photography session is they might love your images. They love their dog, but they think there's no way my dog's going to do this. Mm -hmm. My dog can't be off leash. My dog's too hyper. My dog's not well-trained. So it's educating that to potential clients that, Hey, these are normal dogs. This dog was on a leash. I took it off. Um, you know, in Photoshop, this dog is just a normal, not trained, regular household dog. So that they start to get the confidence that their dog actually has what it takes to create these images with you. That's a lot of good, rich stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, a lot of my coaching clients are pet photographers and I have wanted some resources that I can send them to, especially someone that's just starting. Yes, yes. Because somebody that was just starting who had not taken any pet training, she just loves them. Yep. A couple of times she almost got bit and, it, you know, I, it was right. like, oh yeah, first thing I ought to recommend 
besides learning more from you as well, is is to learn about animal behavior. And I like what you said about asking the clients what motivates them. So thanks for that. Okay, what's number three? All right, now following along those lines perfectly is safety. <laughs> ah. um, uh, it's one way for safety for the dogs is leashes. I get so many clients that even though I say, Hey, we're going to have them unleash, you know, we'll take them off. I shoot in the city a lot. I love shooting in the city and the textures and the backgrounds and it's just my jam. And especially in places like that, it's imperative that these dogs remain on leash because there's buses, there's cars, there's, you know, other reactive dogs maybe walking around that if that dog ran up, you know, even though that dog's friendly and off leash, for instance, my personal dog is super reactive on leash. So if a dog's off leash and runs up to her, it's going to escalate very badly. Mm. Um, you know, so it's being aware of those types of situations and following leash laws. So, you know, we're allowed to continue to shoot in these parks and these other areas and just always keeping the safety of the dog and yourself at the top of mind. So I always keep my dogs on leash, especially in the city. Um, the only time I'll let them off leash is if we're in a park and there is literally no one nearby and the dog is very well trained. But if we happen to take the dog off and I start to notice the least little bit that that dog is not listening or they're really interested in what's going on over in those bushes, or I can tell even when they're on leash that they're really prey driven and they're going to chase a squirrel a dog stays on leash and we can still get action shots. You can still like run with the dog. You can get a long leash that you can bring with the dog. So you can still create all of the images that you want to create while keeping the dog safe and, you know, making sure everybody stays safe. And along those lines too, for your safety, again, coming back to that, knowing these signs of stress in the dog, because all of these dogs before they ever would bite, give off signs, but we are usually too focused on, oh, I need to get this shot. I need to do this or just general. We don't know. So we don't notice. So they might start to lick their lips a little bit. That little bit of hair on their back might stand up. Um, they might start avoiding and looking away from you, not looking at your camera. And, you know, those are all things of dogs way of saying, I need a little space, please. I'm a little uncomfortable. Mm. And if you were to then come right over them with like, you know, a 24 millimeter lens to do the shot where you're like down over top of them, that's really scary. Yeah. For they have this giant eye above them. So knowing that behavior so you can move slowly. There's certain dogs that I just, I literally cannot do that shot for. But usually most of them, they'd be nervous at the beginning, but like, I don't do that shot until the end. So I have this history now with the dog, the dog knows me, the dog likes me, the dog knows I have all sorts of amazing goodies. And then by then we've built a relationship and they don't mind. Mm. But if I were to meet a dog for the first time and say, all right, the first shot I'm going to do is this wide angle over your head. I mean, that's just setting up the whole situation for them to be stressed and fearful. And when dogs are stressed and fearful is when they might start to bite or start to get aggressive because they don't feel like they have any other way. They are trying to tell you, I'm not comfortable, but you know, we weren't listening because yeah. we didn't know what to do. Oh, that's such good stuff. I know you also do equine. Mm -hmm. Yep. And yes. I have some equine coaching clients that might uh -huh. find this interesting. So one of my sessions, she had three horses. And as I began to do the session, because I've seen these beautiful pictures of, you know, owners kissing their noses and different right. things. And because she's also a trainer, she would say, I'm not going to do that because if he rears his head, 
I'm dead. And she knew it wasn't my specialty, um, but she loved my work. And at one point I, I said, photographing horses is a lot like photographing toddlers. (laughs) And she said, yes, toddlers that can kill you. They get right. Right. Oh yeah. These are big beasts. So Mm -hmm. are there some particular signals with, with horses? Absolutely. Yeah. Horses sometimes tend not to give quite as many signals before they react. They won't usually react aggressively. Like a dog will give you warning and warning and warning. And then his last option is to bite where a horse, their first thing is fight or flight. They're going to, they're going to flee. They, they want out of the situation. They are not usually going to fight per se, but they're big animals. They're big thousand, 1200 pound animals that are prey animals and pretty much nervous of everything. And even if they don't mean to hurt you, they can just because of their size. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you just want to, the biggest challenge I think for, for equine photography would be putting yourself in a situation where if the horse spooks, you can't get out of the way in the time. Uh. So like I would never like a dog I'm laying on the ground. I like, as low as possible to get images of dogs sometimes. I would never lay down near a horse yeah. because they spook. They're going to step on you. They don't want to. They just, you know, might not be able to get out of the way. Um, so you just have to be really cognizant of that. And also just cognizant of, um, you know, like if I'm photographing a senior girl and her mom's there, I would never just be like, oh, here, mom, hold the horse. Like mom might be terrified. My mom's been around horses. I've been riding since I was eight. I'm now over 40. And my mom still, she comes to the barn with me and my daughter and she's like, it's going to eat me. I'm like, it's, it's not going to eat you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, I would never give her the horse to hold because she just would not be comfortable with that. And it could be a safety issue. So the things the horses tend to do when they start to get a little nervous is they'll stand up straight. Their ears will go forward. They'll just be like really just frozen. You know, they might kind of move their weight back on their body a little bit as if they're like ready to bolt. And some of that, it's a fine line because we want attention from the horse. So we want them to pick their head up and put their ears forward and look at us. But if you take it too far, they're going to freak out and then they're going to getting them back. It's like photographing a cat. Once you make a cat mad, you're done. You might as well come back in a couple of days. Fix it. Um, Same thing with the horse. Once you freak them out, especially more hot bloods like thoroughbreds or Arabians, I mean, they're going to be keyed up for the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. So you just have to take things slowly. And the owners usually know if their horse is okay with something or more fearful. And like using lights around horses, I found that horses really don't care about the strobe or the flashing, but they are often very nervous of any modifiers because mm. they're big, they make sound and they move where the light doesn't bother them. But sometimes dogs in a studio might be more nervous of the light, especially dogs that might have a thunder, thunderstorm phobia. So all sorts of interesting things. With yeah. But I, <laughs> what I learned with this gal is two of the horses, if, if we tried to get them in the wrong positioning, they might start nipping at each other. Right. <laughs> in a way right. that wasn't good. I also was so surprised at how, cause I'm an overshooter, which it serves me well right. because most of my clients purchase three to six wall portraits or more. Uh-huh. And so I have to have a lot to sell. So I'm showing her with the slideshow and music and everything, images I just love. And then when we get down to the sorting and, and something, you know, my heart is like, oh, I just really did a good job. She's like, 
no, I don't like his expression. And I'm like, there's an expression? (laughs) (laughs) Right? The subtleties, but because especially not just it's her animals, but also she's a trainer. So those little subtle things. um, Absolutely. So. and becoming familiar with that natural history and, and the, the body expression and the, you know, the, what, what these animals are saying with their different expressions comes in really useful too. Cause then you can be going through your images and be like, Oh, the dog looks really fearful there. I'm not going to show that one. Right. You know, so definitely all comes back to that learning that natural history about them. Right. I like that term natural history. All right. I love all this good stuff. Oh yeah. So much good stuff. <laughs> What's number four. Number four is being aware of settings traps. So like just possible pitfalls that people fall in when they're photographing animals, when they're used to photographing other subjects. Um, Number one is our dogs have much longer noses than humans often. So you have to be really careful that when you, you know, go to upload your images after your session, that you have some with the eyes in focus and it's all not just nose, 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 and the eyes are soft. So that's something to be aware of. Of course, you can change your aperture a little bit, you know, depending on what lens you're using, your depth of field's going to change. So, you know, I still often shoot at 2.8, wow. but often with my, you know, 70 to 200 at 200. So I'm further away. So even at that, my dog's whole face is in focus. Uh, whereas like a wider 24 millimeter lens, that depth of field is going to be so, so skinny. You know, maybe the eyes in focus, but the nose isn't, which I'm okay with. I mean, it wouldn't be if you're going to enter that print competition, that's a different story. But um, I'm okay with, a, you know, a couple images where the focus is on the eye and maybe the nose is a little soft, like, you know, the lifestyle outdoor stuff, the owners love it. But you just want to make sure that <laughs> that's not your whole gallery. So that's something to keep in mind. The other thing is your shutter speed. So, you know, we all know the reciprocal rule that if you're shooting at 200 millimeters, your shutter speed needs to be at least one 200th of a second in order not to have camera shake. But we're working with moving animals, a lot like toddlers. So (laughs) you might want to keep that shutter speed. For me, I try to always keep it above one 500th because, you know, our dogs are still going to be moving a little bit. And I also keep my... um, my focusing on AI servo and Canon or and, um, AFC continuous focus on Nikon so that my, my focus is always moving a little bit. I use back button focus too, but that's neither here nor there. You can, yeah. you can shoot without back button focus. I just prefer it. And then when the dogs really start moving for action speed, you want to stay about one, one thousand. This is usually the slowest I want to go for that to really freeze that motion. So just some common traps there. And one other thing, I mean, this could be, this could be like 37 secrets to pet photography. Yeah, you just came <laughs> up with a new uh, lead magnet. <laughs> I yeah, I think so. One other thing you want to really make sure that you focus some learning time on, if you're not familiar with it, is Photoshop and having some Photoshop tricks up your sleeve, um, like those horses that couldn't be near each other. I don't know how many times that, you know, because our owners want the pictures of both dogs or three dogs or both horses or three horses together. And sometimes you literally can't do it or you're going to be spending all day trying to get the attention of one, but the other's not, you know, maybe they don't get along or maybe one's like a puppy and one's old and you can't get his attention. You need to bring a dog behind. Mm -hmm. Regardless, it's good to have 
a nice little bag of tricks that you are comfortable with merging some images or head swaps and Photoshop so that you can produce an image that the owner wants on their wall at every single session will really help your your bottom line. I agree. So going back to the shutter speed, I've had many debates with people who are friends of mine who don't photograph children as their uh-huh. specialty. And if they are photographing on auto, which sometimes I do just to idiot proof myself when I'm chasing kids in and out of some different kinds of lighting, I always set the shutter speed and let the aperture fall where it may. Yep. And these, you know, these are good friends that I can, I sometimes second shooters for me that I'm like, set it on 250, set it on 250. And then I'll notice, nope, they've switched it to, to, you know, F4 on auto. And I always say that you can't fix blur. You can fix underexposure. You can fix even softness, or if it's a high ISO, you can reduce noise. But if a kid's arm is moving, there's no fix for that. You know, occasionally you can call it art and say you meant to do it. Yeah, yeah. I I 100% agree. I'm a a stickler. I'm a bit of a control enthusiast. So um, (laughs) I shoot on on manual all the time because um, I used to shoot aperture priority or shutter priority here and there when I started, but I found that even then I wasn't always happy with the choices the camera was making for me. So I, I tell it what to do. Now. Yes. 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 <laughs> All there, the time. Yes. And for me, because I use mostly light that I find, I don't add light. So then as it starts getting darker, I will happily raise the ISO yep. before yep. I'll change anything else because I can definitely fix that a lot easier than absolutely conversations. Okay. Yeah. And I want to, I want to encourage people too to, to, to slow down and not feel, I know I struggled this with, with this when I started, it was, if I'm not shooting every second that I'm there, my clients are going to know that I don't know what I'm doing mm. <laughs> or they're going to think I'm not a professional because I mean, obviously any professional would be shooting every second they're here, right? you know, especially with animals. Like it's okay to say, hold on a second. Like I'll actually all the time. I will even just walk ahead for a second and be like, you guys hang out here. I want to go check out some light or check mm-hmm. out some areas over here. And I'll walk over, let the dog have a break, let the dog have some water. I'll check that out. I'll come back. I'll be like, nah, I don't really like that right now. Or yes, let's go over here. I'll tell them, okay, just hang out here for a minute. You know, don't do anything. I'm just going to get my settings. It's okay to say, I'm going to adjust my settings <laughs> and then figure out what you want to do. Take a test shot or two. And then go on, you know, you, it's, it's okay to, to just slow down and think about what you're doing. Right. Um, so for all of you newer photographers out there, take a breath and, and, you know, test it out and just tell people to take a break for a second and it's okay. <laughs> I love it. One of the advantages of having grown up with film is every time I clicked the shutter, it was a dollar in my mouth. Mm-hmm. And if we could think of that with digital, because time is money. Yep. Um, And also one of my teachers that I went to a lot of his classes and right now I can't remember which one it was, but he always said, if it doesn't look good, don't take the shot. You know, sometimes I'll have everything nicely posed and I'll look at it and I'll just say, nah, this isn't really working for me and not waste my time and effort. Now, 
I might sometimes just go click, click and move on. But I allow myself to, you know, like you said, slow down, really see what I'm doing. And I have to tell you, Nicole, last night, I just remembered this. I dreamed I was photographing a royal wedding in England (laughs) with with my old twin lens Mamiya C330 camera. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) And I only had, you know, you get 24 shots and then you have to reload. And so, I mean, it was so vivid that I woke up, I was surprised it wasn't real. (laughs) And, And I was doing just what you said. I was slowing down. I was checking my angles. You know, I wasn't just going boom, 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 boom. You know, we right. being a sharpshooter rather than a machine gun yes. has a lot of value and clients can see and appreciate that. Absolutely. So do you have tip number five? Yep, yep, yep. And this is really a tip that works for just about any genre that you're photographing. And it kind of has a good lead in from what we were just talking about is take a minute and look at your lighting and your background and your composition, you know, and, and really look at it. And is that what you want to portray is the hero of the shot, either relationship between the parents and the dog or the dog itself is, is the focus on what you want it to be. Um, and with the composition and the cropping, you know, the same rules for dogs apply as for people. So you don't want to crop at the joints there's kind of like normal areas that like a head shot, a head and shoulder shot, or make sure you get the feet in. You don't crop the feet off or the top of the head off. It's the same rules as photographing um, humans. And likewise, also with the lighting, you know, it's a little bit more challenging um, with dogs sometimes than humans because we have a lot of white dogs and black dogs. I mean, wedding photographers have had the struggle for years. <laughs> it's not new. No. Well, I have a lot of people wear white clothes and black clothes. Right, right. So. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, and you just have to really make sure that, you know, that you're lighting, you're not blowing out those whites, you're not locking up the blacks that, you know, just with those different textures in the fur Mm -hmm. that you have proper lighting on those. One of the little tricks that I love to do and love to to tell people to do is, you know, if you're not sure and you just want like kind of a soft and like one of the easiest places to photograph a black dog is not in direct sun because you get a lot of, especially those shiny, like a lab with like shiny black, Mm -hmm. you get like really dark and kind of really reflective and it's really, really hard. But if you get that dog in a little bit of open shade and, you know, there's, they're looking up towards an open sky, you're going to get big, beautiful catch lights. You're going to get perfect soft lighting on the dog and you're going to get true blacks. And it's, you know, well, you might have to pull down some blue because there's some blue in the shade, but you do all that in post-processing that comes in learning the post-processing. Anyway, just being cognizant of that, those kinds of things as you're creating your different shots. So, Nicole, I use a handheld meter uh-huh. that, you know, and use manual settings. And I'm sure you know this, but one of the things that's important is to set the camera so that the middle gray is reading right. Right. And that's the problem with if you're pointing and metering by pointing the camera to the subject and it's a black and white dog or horse or you know, everyone in white or black, the camera is going to over or underexpose. So learning how to set your cameras so that 
the overall light, not sure if I'm explaining this right, but anyway, not lighting for the color of the of the clothing or the pet, but for the ambient light, the amount of light that's actually falling on the subjects. Yeah, yeah. I tend to um I tend to spot meter and I'll spot meter on the face and I just know like for you know, for a dark dog, I'm going to have that meter a little bit. I know which way it actually is. I need to actually like hold my camera and just do it. <laughs> a dark dog. Yeah. I'm like overexposing the smidge, right? So if you're in the snow, you need to go two stops more. If everything's black in a scene, two stops under. Because the okay, camera's going to yeah. want to make that dog gray. So it's going right, to add right, a little right. too much light. And the gotcha. white Thank dog, you. the one at gray. But yeah, I have to. <laughs> I just like, I just do it without thinking about what 37 doing, you know? years later, I still sometimes have to take a beat. Yeah, which is, right. you know, my, my go-to is always to look at the histogram. And right. I don't care what the Absolutely. middle looks like. I want to know it's touching the right, which is highlight and not crawling up the side and touching the left and not crawling up the side. And then I know everything in the scene that the highlights and shadow details are there and I can, you know, good to go. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, and then the one other little lighting tip that works really well for humans and animals is always just kind of think of taking their nose towards the light. And that just often gives you just a really nice lighting, you know, on their face to be able to, to have a nice, lovely portrait. I totally agree. Okay, what's your number six, Miss Nicole? All right, number six is change your perspective. So the biggest, biggest difference and actually the quickest and easiest way to take your pet photos from like, oh, that's cute to, wow, that's really impactful is to change your perspective. And often that means getting lower, like laying in a ditch on the ground <laughs> low, <laughs> especially if you're photographing, you know, a small dog, even a medium sized dog, they might come up to our knees. They're really, really low. So getting down into their world and shooting from that perspective just makes it really, really impactful. And, um, you know, with a small dog, you can get them up on something and you can even shoot from a little bit underneath that small dog. And then that dog becomes bigger, larger than life. And, you know, that's why people hire us is because that's how they see their dog every day. It's just like, oh, this is like the love of my little furry life. And to be able to have that dog as the hero of this image is why they hire us because they, they don't know how to do that with their phone. You know, it's, it's creating that, getting into that dog's world. So often low, people forget to get low. But then on the other hand, you can also get above them and you get that dog looking up. And, you know, that's a face that they see all the time when they're taking their dog out for a walk or, you know, they're always looking up at them. You just want to make sure that your whole gallery isn't the same perspective. And you definitely don't want to just rely on standing at normal human height, taking pictures of the dog. Yeah, you almost always want to get down a little bit lower. Right. And I would throw in that that, changing perspective in terms of taking a wide shot, doing a close-up, having some action, having some quiet, the more variety, the better. And also when we have those big scenery with small dog, those yep. are perfect for wall portraits. Oh yes. Over the Absolutely. fireplace. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And also, so you would say, do your yoga, <laughs> stretch, yep. 
<laughs> practice at the gym with my trainer. We do this thing we call, I just call the up downs, which right, is right. has me get down on the floor and then stand up again because well, I'm not as flexible as in the past <laughs> right. or it's not as easy to stand up as it used to be. So yep. just like with kids, there's a lot of energy and up and down and crawling. Yeah, and it's down. very physical for sure. So last but not least, I'm sure, <laughs> number seven. <laughs> yes, the expression and the attention. That is also the biggest secret to getting these impactful images is getting that dog to like have the little head tilt, their ears forward, you know, just looking right into the camera where you can like look into the dog's soul in the image. Mm -hmm. And um, and that I think is one of the biggest differentiators between people that when they just start wanting to take pictures of dogs where they're letting the dogs kind of run around and they're just kind of documentary style taking pictures of the dog versus setting dogs up to get an actual portrait. So I'll give you some tips for that. Number one is I figure out the scene, the image that I want to create. And I kind of put the dog and that owner in that area. I tell them just to hang out there for a second. I make sure my settings are good. My exposure is right. My composition's how I want it. All that stuff's there. And then I'll kind of tell them, okay, you know, I, I prep my owner beforehand to hold the leash straight up. So it's easier to edit out because you'll just have the leash wrapped around legs and feet one time and you'll never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they know, okay, we're ready. And they do that. And, you know, it doesn't matter if the dog's sitting or standing. I have some different noisemakers that I just do one quick, like, you know, one quick loud blast on the, the hunting whistle and the dog's like, what was that? And they snap to attention and their head turns and their ears come up and it is like, that's the image. And you get it, you know, just like, it's like clockwork. It's so easy once you figure that out, except they only last a couple times. So like each novel sound, you've got three shots max with that sound. And then you need to find some other way to get the dog's attention. So let me give you my favorites. My absolute favorite is going on Amazon or to like Cabela's or, you know, outdoor stores and going to the hunting section and looking for different calls. And there's like a rabbit tail distress call. There's turkey calls. There's like all sorts of crazy calls. And these are unusual sounds the dogs haven't really heard before. So I use those. I also use a lot of just different voices and different sounds that I make. If you're going to be a pet photographer, you have to be really comfortable laying on the ground on the sidewalk in the city going, oh, 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 like really loud, making really dog noises. Here comes my dog running into my office. <laughs> What's happening, mom? Um, so we have that. And I usually start with me making noises first and I save the hunting calls and things like I ramp it up. So I try to start as little as possible. You can also ask the owners if there's anything like, no, I can't say, do you want to go for a W-A-L-K? Because my yes. dog is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. um, But, you know, or is there a squirrel or, you know, whatever their little trigger words are, will often get the little head, head going. Those, I think, are my main ones. I also have an app on my phone. It's just called Dog Sounds. And oh. it, um, it has like whining dogs. It has some horse whinnies. That works well for the horses, too. Yeah. So those I think are my main sound makers. And then sometimes you'll get dogs that maybe aren't into sounds like sight mm -hmm. hounds, like greyhounds. I mean, it will work once for them maybe, but then they like vision. So you might 
throw something up in the air. You might like wave your arm really fast. You might like pretend to throw them a treat. Make sure you actually give them a treat, you know, so they are otherwise they'll get just totally ignore you. Um, yeah. Kind of like uh, husbands so yeah. maybe. Right, right. Got to give them a treat every now and again. That's right, um, yeah. But yeah, I, so all of those different things just help to, to keep the expression or to get that expression to really create that engaging portrait. Again, this is so similar to children's photography. Yes. I start by being the entertainer. Yep. And I work on a tripod because for me, developing the relationship and eye contact and having my hands free is super important. Hard yeah. to get natural expressions on humans when there's a big black thing in front of your face. Right. And then let's say I'm doing babies. I have squeakers. I have bells. Bells are, I have a little bell on a ribbon. And then as they're older, I have little games. And when we're outdoors, my assistant will, I have a wiffle ball and let's see how long the wiffle ball can stay on my head. And my assistant will put her finger through it. You know, I hold it up and then the assistant puts her finger through it behind my head. And then I start counting. Uh huh. And you know, they're just, I get great expressions where their right, right. eyes are very engaged. So yeah, I, interesting how many similarities there are but you've given us all kinds of things that i never knew that are particular to animals i noticed when i was doing the the three horses that shaking a bucket of food <laughs> caught their yeah. attention so do you have a couple of quick marketing tips and I'm sorry I didn't ask you this in advance to yeah, prepare no worries. that are specific to pets yeah I mean really marketing for pets is just like marketing for any other genre it's figuring out where your target market is and how to reach them and you know determining making sure that you're offering something that they find valuable and I find for my particular clients, doggy daycares are um, great areas, target rich environments, any place where people are spending money on their dogs, you know, for mm -hmm. their work. It's basically like babysitters while they're at work to go to the doggy daycare, you know, bigger vet hospitals, like specialty hospitals, things like that have always been great. I've always had luck with silent auctions. I built my business on silent auctions. And those don't have to be just pet related, like they can be the symphony and, you know, the, any cultural event, hospital galas, things like that. Cause those people have pets too, that they love. Yeah. And then charitable marketing, working with rescues and things like that sometimes has also been really, really helpful for me as well to grow my business. And then the normal SEO client referrals, all that stuff. Thank you for that. So Nicole, this has been super awesome. And I know my Listeners would like to know how to get in touch with you. First off, how can they see your photography? I know you have your website for your photography clients. So what is that? That's NicoleBagleyPhotography.com. Okay. And then how about if they want to know more about your teaching, coaching? Yeah, that is hairofthedogblog.com. And if you go there, there's links. You can join us in our Facebook group. We have a free Facebook group of over 10,000 pet photographers. And then I also run Hair of the Dog Academy, which is a membership site that has 
the business of pet photography, which is one of my flagship courses and a post-processing for pet photography course, as well as extra support through office hours and laser coaching and um, pet photography EDU course from Kim Hartz. There's so much great information in there for pet photographers to help them improve their craft and also grow their business. Great. So because I'm going to be on it, I want to make sure selfishly (laughs) that they know about the summit. So tell me what that is about. Yeah, the summit, the Hair of the Dog online summit will be November 12th through 14th. If you register before, starting around November 1st, you can save a few dollars. And we're going to have at least 15 incredible speakers all about the business and art and pet photography. Super excited for your class, Lucy. It's going to be awesome. Cool. Well, once again, thank you, Nicole, so, 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 so much. And I'm looking forward to more conversations with you. Are you going to PPA in Nashville in January? I am not. I was hoping to, but my husband has to go somewhere for work that week. So somebody needs to stay with the tiny human. So you won't be able to meet her there, but if you go, I'll be there (laughs) and other cool people. Thanks again, Nicole. This has been amazing. So before you go, I wanted to do a quick summary of some of the things that I took away from today's conversation with Miss Nicole of Hair of the Dog. And also, I forgot to have her mention that she is offering a $1 seven-day deal where you can go to hairofthedogblog.com slash $1 deal. And so a couple things I learned from her is that her ideal clients come from young professionals who have no children yet, and also empty nesters, people who've raised their families and now their pets are their babies. And also she gave seven great tips with lots of good content, the importance of patience, the importance of loving what you're photographing. So whether you're a pet photographer or widgets or sunsets or... (laughs) in my case, children and families, weddings, etc. You want to be doing what you love. And then with pets, and it's also true with humans, you want to learn how animals communicate, what their signals are. Get some basic training. She said, don't shoot the dog. Book is like the primer for becoming knowledgeable about animals. Ask the client what motivates their pet. She also talked a lot about safety, making sure there's leashes that are always on and, you know, environments that will be safe for the dogs and the humans. And to learn your camera settings, that too wide of an aperture, if you're not using it right, can result in sharp noses and blurry eyeballs, too slow of a shutter speed, or not having the focusing set up so that you can really catch that focus Every time she says it's super important, which I agree with. And there's Photoshop tricks for how to do composites so that animals that may be not willing or able to be close to each other can be close in an image and lots of other important things as a professional that you can learn in Photoshop. She also talked about taking your time, taking a minute looking at what you want to portray, thinking about it. And then also about change of perspective, get high, get low. You know, I pitched in, use 
different wide angles, close-ups, different things. So the environment changes, the focus changes, have a lot of variety, and then learn how to get expressions. So set up the scene and then have noisemakers. I really liked her notion that calls, duck calls, goose calls, moose calls, those kinds of things you get from a hunting store are awesome to have in your camera bag. And you want to have several because they get three, four times and they're not as intrigued. So that's it for today. I am super glad you joined me and look forward to getting your feedback, having you schedule a quick call if you want to chat about anything I have going on, including my group coaching that is starting this month and other goodies. Have a great week. Bye now. You have been listening to The Highly Profitable Photographer with Lucy Dumas. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, review, and share. To connect one-on-one and learn more about our coaching programs, just go to lucydumascoaching.com. Until next time, go have fun photographing and selling your work.